We gather women around the table for a collective conversation. From SDPB, today is Tuesday, February 27th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a National Geographic image exhibition illuminates the lives of women, from their adventures to their ordinary moments, from their cultural progress to the work that remains. We'll hear an update from Peer that asks who can perform certain eye procedures. Our on-call with the Prairie Doc conversation takes a deep breath and explores the medicine that keeps those breaths coming. Plus, on Teacher Talk, we'll reflect on the teachers who got it wrong. How can we reframe those memories of classrooms where we didn't feel seen? That's coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. In Their Own Words brings you closer to the debates and conversations behind legislative topics. Supported by SDN Communications. You're listening to In the Moment on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. For 30 years, South Dakota hasn't updated the law books on educational standards for optometrists. House Bill 1099 would change that. The bill provides updates to reflect the changes in coursework, practices, and procedures. In other states, optometrists can perform a few non-invasive procedures. They have been limited in doing so in South Dakota. Now, opponents to the legislation worry about patient safety, the levels of training, and the scope of procedures that are listed in this bill. Now, in their own words, hear debate about House Bill 1099 from the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. First up, we have HB 1099, which is to establish educational standards for the expanded practice of optometry. Do we have any proponent testimony? My name is Dr. Shane Clark, and I am a board-certified optometrist currently practicing in Rapid City, South Dakota. I'm here representing the South Dakota Optometric Society and my fellow optometrists and our patients to ask for your support on House Bill 1099. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about the procedures that optometrists have been educated, trained, and certified to perform to provide safe and effective care to our patients. As an optometrist, I'm the primary eye care provider for most people. Similar to your general primary care physician or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, patients come to see me for their routine medical eye care, contact lenses and eyeglass prescriptions, preventative and maintenance eye care, and after-surgery treatments and follow-ups for routine conditions and diseases of the eye. An ophthalmologist is a provider who specializes in advanced diseases of the eye and the surgical procedures necessary to treat those diseases that require piercing of the globe and or more advanced procedures. Some of my patients may go their entire lives without needing to see an ophthalmologist because they have good eye health or conditions that can be addressed by an optometrist. But when a patient has an advanced disease or a condition that requires surgical intervention, such as cataract surgery, invasive glaucoma surgery, LASIK, or any other treatment for an advanced disease, I refer that patient to an ophthalmologist. This is like how your primary care physician refers you to a specialist for advanced treatment. The procedures and services that optometrists are seeking to provide under the House Bill 1099 have been taught in every optometric college in the nation since at least 2015. The procedures added by this bill are very specific and limited to the treatment of eye diseases and conditions. 
There are no scalpel procedures included in this bill before you, and none of them pierce the globe. Complications from these added procedures are rare, but the complications that might happen are not unique to these specific procedures. These procedures should not be reserved solely for ophthalmology when optometrists have been trained, educated, and experienced to perform these procedures. It's unfair to the public, especially those patients who do not have easy access to ophthalmology. Optometry should be allowed to grow with the advancements just as every other profession has been allowed to grow when the growth can be done safely for the benefit of the patient. Thank you. Any further proponent testimony? Jennifer Stalley on behalf of the South Dakota Optometric Society. There's something very unique in this bill um, where we're putting into statute specific guardrails for optometrists to have to prove up their competency in this area beyond that 10,000 hours of optometry school, 2,000 patients that they're seeing during that time. If you look at section two and three of the bill, there are um, requirements for the optometrist that they're going to have to prove up to the optometry board before they're authorized to be able to perform these procedures. Specifically, there are two national exams. They'll have to take a national exam on lasers and they'll have to take a national exam on injections. Both will have to be taken and passed. They'll have to take a 32-hour certification course. This isn't where they're learning these procedures. This is where they're certifying their competency through a proctored exam and hands-on demonstration. All of those procedures have to be included in that course, and the optometrist has to demonstrate and pass all of those procedures as part of that certification course. And then finally, the truly unique um, requirement that's included in those guardrails is that an optometrist will have to perform the procedures on five live eyes. They'll have to demonstrate the competency to the satisfaction of a licensed ophthalmologist on five live eyes for each of the procedures other than the YAG laser where they'll have to demonstrate that on 10 live eyes. I can tell you having done Healthcare and Scope of Practice Act work for 25 years, there is no other profession in South Dakota that has to go through these guardrails to prove up, to be allowed to do what they've already been trained to do. And so to the extent that there are concerns about the patient safety or concerns about the competency of the optometrist to do this, these are the strictest guidelines um, in South Dakota for any profession and the strictest in the nation for any optometrist doing these procedures. Okay, with that, we will open it up to opponent testimony on HB 1099. My name is Drew Duncan. I'm the registered lobbyist for the South Dakota Academy of Ophthalmology. Uh, this is not a workforce bill. Uh, our, our information shows that South Dakota has the third highest rates per capita in the United States for optometrists. It's not a patient safety bill. If it was, it wouldn't allow practitioners with months and years less training to perform some of these procedures. It's not even a well-written bill anymore. Our reading shows uh, that this bill partially grants optometrists full body cosmetic surgery rights and mistakenly says there's no interocular surgeries when these lasers procedures are in some form interocular. Uh, this is also not a compromise and you've heard that numerous times both in the, in the house and here. Uh, when I got reinvolved in this matter in December um, I asked my clients about compromise and I suggested to them without some efforts at compromise, um, I wouldn't become reinvolved. They made offers uh, in this particular matter and those were turned down by the optometrists. There was no attempt at compromise. You can't have compromise or an attempt at compromise if you don't have two parties working towards compromise and that didn't happen. Thank you, any further proponent testimony? My name is Mike Eide. I'm an ophthalmologist in Sioux Falls. I'm here today representing South Dakota Academy of Ophthalmology. 
I'd like to start by saying that ophthalmologists across the state are grateful for optometrists and their skill set in providing vision care to South Dakota patients. I have the pleasure of working with fantastic optometrists on a daily basis in my office as well at home since my wife is a licensed South Dakota optometrist. Many people are unaware of the difference between optometrists and ophthalmologists. The training ophthalmologists and optometrists receive is significantly different. The training isn't better or worse, just different. An ophthalmologist attends four years of medical school receiving hands-on proctored training in surgical basics, followed by four years of additional training called residency. By the time an ophthalmologist in training performs his or her first YAG capsulotomy or eyelid injection, they have already assisted in hundreds of live human surgeries, and just as importantly, spent months taking care of people with serious disease and manage complications associated with surgery. During an ophthalmologist's four-year residency, they learn when to operate, when not to operate, and how to manage complications appropriately. This is not to minimize the training that an optometrist receives. However, 32 hours of surgical training is insufficient to become a safe, competent surgeon. The surgeries proposed in this bill are surgeries of the eyelid and eyeball that cannot be mastered with classroom or lab instruction. Proponents of this bill insist that this bill is necessary to increase patient access to care. But South Dakota patients currently have very good access to ophthalmology care. 91% of South Dakotans are within one hour of ophthalm an ophthalmologist clinic, and 74% are within 30 minutes. A 2023 study in the Journal of American Medical Association looked at four states that have had surgical expansion and did an analysis which showed that there was no difference in drive time for patients uh, that had, in states that have optometrists uh, doing surgery versus no optometrists doing surgery. Since most optometrists who perform these procedures are in similar geographic areas as ophthalmologists. I would like to once again acknowledge optometrists for the high quality of care they provide patients. But the proposed change from medical eye care providers to surgical eye care providers with only 32 hours of training is not in the best interest of South Dakota patients. Thank you. We'll move to committee discussion and or action. Senator Davis. I'd like to move to pass on House Bill 1099. Second. We have a due pass on HB 1099 from Senator Davis and a second from Senator Bordeaux and the secretary will call the roll. Senator Bordeaux. Aye. Nordstrom. No. Reed. No. Roll. Aye. Walsh. Aye. Davis. Aye. Tobin. Aye. Madam Chair, we have five yeas and two nays. With that, HB 1099 moves to the floor with a due pass recommendation. That bill has passed the House and Senate and is awaiting the governor's signature. You can find full debates online at sd.net. Well, unfortunately, there are many ailments that can take your breath away, but a pulmonologist can help get it back for you. This week on Call with the Prairie Doc covers coughs, wheezing, asthma, and more. Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger is an internal medicine physician with the Vera Medical Group Brookings, and she's with us on the phone. Dr. Evans, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me again. Give us a little preview of the upcoming show, all about the, the wheezing, the coughing, and the breathing. <laughs> Where do you want to begin today? Yeah. So you're right. I mean, there's a lot of very common pulmonary diseases, and um, this is one of those shows that we never have any shortage of viewer questions. We'll have 
two pulmonary specialists on um, on the show to, to answer those questions and hopefully tackle some topics, especially common ones, you know, like you mentioned, asthma, COPD, um, sleep apnea is within the purview of the pulmonologist, lots of common diseases that we can talk about. I'm sure that uh, COVID and long COVID has changed a lot of this conversation. In what ways are you seeing it still show up in people's breathing? Yeah, so I can certainly think of a handful of patients that are in my regular panel who do have chronic lung disease as a result of having had severe COVID. Um, and some of those, you know, were as early as 2020 and, and still have some some lung disease that can look a little bit in some cases like um, asthma. And, and sometimes it can look a little bit different, more like a fibrosis or scarring lung condition. So there's some variability there, and, and we usually use breathing tests to help us sort that out. But you're right, um, some severe lung infections can leave permanent uh, damage on the lungs. What are we seeing as far as uh, children and asthma? Are those rates still going up, holding steady? Any trends in asthma or asthma treatment that you think uh, are worth elevating today? Um, yeah, I mean, I think asthma is, of course, a pretty common childhood condition. Um, I'll speak for, you know, I have I have two kids, and my kids don't do a lot of wheezing, but they do have a lot of nighttime coughing, which is on the spectrum of asthma, and they benefit from inhalers for that reason. I would just say there's a, so many options for treatment as far as inhaled medications for asthma that very rarely do we not achieve good control if, if you're kind of following the guidelines and using stepwise therapy. Um, that being said, sometimes the challenges and the cost of these medications, I encounter this every day. A lot of inhalers are still very expensive because they're still patented and brand name, um, depending on people's insurance coverage. So sometimes that is an issue, but that there are some that are going um, generic now as far as some of the inhaled steroids. So I think more hope that some of those things will be more easily accessible for people as well in the coming years. How common is it for a kid to outgrow? childhood asthma? Pretty common. I mean, especially kids with more mild asthma, a lot of them will have improvement, if not complete resolution in adulthood. Um, but it, it certainly varies. Um, and, and kids maybe with more severe asthma are likely to have more persistent asthma. Um, but, you know, the rates in adulthood are are fewer. And it depends a little bit on exposure. I mean, you know, if, if you're an adult with asthma that, or excuse me, a child with asthma that goes on to be an adult that smokes, you're probably more likely to have ongoing symptoms. But if you can avoid some of those triggers, um, most adults are able to achieve pretty good control. I feel like that's a good opportunity to talk about smoking. <laughs> uh, yes, I, always a good opportunity to talk about smoking. How, right? how so, much is um, too much? How much is too much? People, you know, like you you tried it when you were younger, right? And with the prevalence of, of recreational marijuana in, in some younger communities or vaping, there there's new dynamics too. So where do you want to lay down the the guidelines regarding that? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when it comes to some lung diseases, I mean, no amount of smoking is safe. I still see, you know, I, I see some patients who, you know, these might be older adult patients who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema um, because of a history of smoking. And honestly, I've, I've even had patients who we really struggled to control their COPD, even when they were, you know, doc, I've cut down and I'm only smoking three cigarettes a day. But then when they quit, it, it becomes so much easier just because they're not getting that 
constant irritation in their lungs. So I think if you have lung disease, you know, any amount of cigarette smoke is undesirable. Um, when it comes to increasing risk of lung cancer, we do have some guidance, for for example, that we use when we talk about lung cancer screening on how much cigarette smoking in your lifetime is likely to increase your risk enough to warrant that. Um, although that's evolved, actually, um, even in the last five years based on some of the data. So mm. the more, the worse. Yeah. But, you know, of course, the, the best case is, is no cigarette smoking. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about, that as we move into spring and summer, allergens and environmental exposures. I know we've had a dry winter in a lot mm-hmm. of places. The, the wildfire risk might be elevated this year mm-hmm. compared to what we saw last year. Some people may have mm-hmm. forgotten a little bit and need a reminder to check that air quality and, and take precautions. What's a good thing to remember as we move into spring? Yeah, and it's a great reminder because, yeah, you're right, it, it might be a difficult uh, spring and summer depending on how this weather pattern goes. But, um, yeah, air quality is important. I think as, asthma is a, a key condition in which air quality is important. You talked about the wildfire smoke that we've had the last couple of years on occasion, even, you know, from, you know, many hundreds of miles away. And right. I know that my patients with asthma have come in with exacerbations related to those wildfire um, air conditions. So it's a real thing. I mean, climate scientists talk about the potential toll on respiratory diseases that things like this are going to take. And we, it, that it's, it's absolutely real. We definitely see it. Um, so, you know, sometimes a high filtration mask, if you know that air quality is bad, especially with things like wildfire, might be helpful, but some of those particulates are so small, um, especially in the cases of fire that um, it really trying to stay inside where you have a, a, a filter controlling your air is probably best. All right. Well, the On Call with the Prairie Doc episode on pulmonary medicine, you can send in your questions. That will premiere Thursday, February 29th on SDPB-TV. It's also on the On Call Facebook page, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. Dr. Kelly Evans-Hellinger, thanks so much for being here with us. We appreciate your time. Thanks again. Welcome back to In the Moment on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, the first of the Women a Century of Change speaker series events is happening tonight. Tonight's event includes a panel of South Dakota women with unique perspectives, life experiences, and wisdom. And so we have gathered three of the panelists around our table here at the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Candy Hansen is on the board of the South Dakota Advocacy Network for Women. Wendy Mamer is a career and academic planning specialist at Augustana University. And Angelica Mercado Ford is an educator, artist, poet, and community advocate. And the glass is going to just blow off the studio here with the, the good ideas and the potential of these women around the table. Wendy, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yes, happy to be here. Angelica, I'm a big fan of your poetry. I've seen you read, but I don't think you've been to the studio before. So welcome for the first time. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here as well. And Candy, I think a lot of listeners know who you are. So thank you for being here. We appreciate that. Delighted to be with you. I want to start with you, Candy, because um, there, you know, when you gather people together and you talk about women and how our lives have changed. And then there's a huge political shift that can be unexpected and can happen at any time, and then they're changing again. But we can't forget where we have been. 
No. So look back a little bit and tell us, especially in a professional area and in the workplace, some of the ways that you have seen the lives of women change in your career. Well, it has been pretty dramatic. I mean, when I moved to South Dakota in the 70s, um, there really wasn't much going on. Um, It was teaching. It was being a secretary. And... um, maybe if you plan to be a nurse. So things really have opened up for women. And I think what's most remarkable now is the number of women who actually graduate college and then go on to advanced degrees, because that wasn't very typical at all. Mm -hmm. And now we have more women in uh, post-secondary education than we have men. So that's meant a dramatic change um, in the workplace. And then... um, I think the other thing, too, is that you are beginning to see more women executives. It's still slow, uh, but you're beginning to see more of them taking a leadership role. Um, I was very fortunate to run the Community Foundation for several years, so that was um, interesting and unique at that time, although I did follow another woman. Did you have, and that was, I was going to lead right to there, which is, did you have other women helping support you or open doors for you? Or did you have men who were particularly attuned to the fact that they needed to pay attention to who was around the table and whose voice was being heard? Did you have to just bust through the door (laughs) through force of will? It wasn't (laughs) quite busting, Lori, but I will say that everything that I have accomplished in my life, I've done with a lot of help from other women. And when I first started out, it was older women saying, well, why don't you uh, join the YWCA board? Well, why don't you be on the YWCA board? Well, why don't you run for the national YWCA board? And it was that kind of experience with them kind of pushing and saying, you need to do this. You need to go forward more than anyone. And then, of course, at the Community Foundation, I followed Sue Brown, who insisted insisted that I apply for the job, and I kept saying, I don't do development. She said, you talk to anybody. You can, you can raise money, yeah. and uh, went to work there. So I would say mostly women. Mm-hmm. Wendy, uh, you see a lot of young students come through Augie, and you're giving them that career advice. You and I have spoken before when you ran for um, the state house that, uh, again, somebody has to say, you can do this. You have a voice. You understand policy. Talk a little bit about what Candy just said, what it brings up for you as far as women supporting other women. When I was asked to run for office, I was given the layout and the demographics, the voter demographics of our district, knowing that it was going to be an incredibly difficult uphill battle. But my main reason for saying yes was because of the students that I worked with at Augustana. We were growing in diversity, and I, for a lot of my life, have not seen representation in roles that I believe myself and other young women of color are capable of. And that's what motivated me to do it, is the relationships that I've built with them and the future that I want them to believe that we can have when we say yes to doing hard things. Mm. And they are hard things. Angelica, um, your work, your poetry, which I find so powerful and moving and really advanced from a craft perspective beyond anything I'll ever be able to accomplish, (laughs) but I love to read, um, brings up issues of, of family and identity, senses of place, origin. Um, Talk a little bit about how you incorporate, you're not only an educator, but also an artist. 
where does the role of art fit in for you in, in saying some of these things and finding a container for some of these really big uh, challenges that we face? Yeah, I think uh, primarily as a woman growing in a very traditional uh, cultural norm, you know, I, I was born in Mexico, so we are traditionally Catholic, and I, I didn't really see role models for myself except for my mother, who, again, I, I've written about a lot extensively, actually, um, just the opportunities that she didn't have as a woman. And so I always knew that I wanted to break those barriers down. And, you know, these are hard conversations, everything that we've already discussed today, right? And so I asked myself, how can I tell the story, my story, my mother's story, the story of many others who might not have the platform to tell their stories in a way that people will listen right? Sometimes it's difficult to just say it. And I think there, that's what makes art beautiful, right? That you have that platform and that space to be able to do that. And uh, whether it's through the, you know, visual arts or the uh, literary arts, whatever it may be, um, people are more likely to listen. And then that way, in a sense, I win. <laughs> <laughs> um, Candy, there are obstacles. There are times when the thing that you're trying to to have people listen to, they don't they don't listen to. Um, something does not go your way. In your experience, how do you handle that? Um, I I am just the person that you don't look at me and tell me I can't do something. If you tell me I can't do something, it's the first thing I'm going to try and do. And in South Dakota, when you're standing up for women and trying to get laws passed that really kind of leveled the playing field for us, you hear no a lot. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so you just say, no, no is what I say. I will not stop. Tell me I can't do it. I'm going to keep going. So, you know, that's been my story ever since I moved to this community. I'm not sure anyone appreciates it, but yeah. it's where I um, no, I will not hold stop. my ground. Yeah. I won't stop. Yeah. No. Um, let's get real about some of those obstacles and start with, you know, Daycare, <laughs> oh, finding, finding childcare has become yeah. such an obstacle yeah. to some women that they're not even allowed to, to, to be in the workforce in a way that they've they've planned for, been educated for, gotten their degrees for. That's a huge one. I'm really not sure how women are making it today. When I moved to Sioux Falls, there were five million uh, families with kids headed by women. In our country today, there's 15 million, and 11 million of them are women. And women make up two-thirds of everyone earning minimum wage. It's tough out there. Um, the, there is some support, but if you're a single woman in South Dakota with two kids um, and you get temporary assistance to, uh, for needy families, you're going to have to work at least 30 hours a week, and you get $701 a month. That's what we will do to subsidize a single parent in South Dakota. So it's really tough. Um, and I think people, uh, child care is only part of it. Your child care will cost you $10,000 a year, um, which you can go to, not to Augie, but <laughs> to several public universities for that in a year. Yeah. Um, Wendy, some of the biggest obstacles that you're seeing in South Dakota that face women that you think really need a light sh shined on them as, is it like, this is something we have to address? Obstacles, yeah. I think the primary obstacle when we look at 
ways that we can be influential through policy in the state of South Dakota, a lot of what stands in our way is the lack of representation of women within our um, lawmaking body. That is another reason why I ran for office. I do believe in order for policy to be inclusive and reflective of the needs of women, we need women in the legislature who have that firsthand perspective and have their own narrative and aren't just going based off of information or misinformation that they they read about. We need that perspective. We need that representation in order to bring more opportunities and to create a safer place uh, here in South Dakota. Angelica, obstacles? Um, I being heard. I mean, it's it's the one I I feel the most and particularly when we look at women artists or women who are saying something, you know, it's for that reason. I think the more we do it, the more we feel less alone. And I think that adds a little bit of the fire that we need. Just if you're not going to listen, I'm going to make you listen. Yeah. <laughs> I will not stop. There we go. Don't stop. That, that persistence, um, Candy, is so important. You've worked with women who have been uh, survivors of a lot of violence. Yep. Um, we, we also live in a society where that is one of the obstacles. That's yeah. a tough thing to overcome. It really is. And um, unfortunately, um, it really hasn't changed all that much. The statistics are still pretty high for um, which, which we call um, intimate partner violence now. Um, but when we started here in Sioux Falls in the 70s, um, we had one hot, well, I'll tell it was Sioux Valley Hospital did not have a rape protocol. If you were taken there to the emergency room, there was no one to collect evidence or to help you or to suggest that you call the Rape and Domestic Violence Hotline. So there have been profound changes. We do have services now. But, you know, it's it's a kind of sociological phenomenon that is just continues to be something that um, women are extremely disadvantaged. Yeah. When you have a panel discussion like the one that you're having tonight, and I'm not sure how you're mapping that out from a structure, but talk a little bit about the the power of just being around the table with other women in conversation, women in the audience who are going to ask questions and, you know, bring their hearts to that, that space, looking to you for guidance. Wendy, the power of, of, that. I mean, at Augie, of course, you have such a strong female leadership as well um, with your executive team. Uh, what do you hope for, for a panel discussion like this? What are you thinking? For me, it's the most important. I never want to say that we are giving a voice to the voiceless. I believe every woman has a voice and that deserves to be heard. One thing that I hope to Um, contribute to this conversation is putting really complex feelings into simple words Mm -hmm. that allow others to feel that they aren't alone and that we all in a lot of ways experience similar things and in the end I hope that that will bring us closer together versus um, creating a larger divide of competitiveness among women. Yeah yeah Angelica what do you want to add to that? Yeah, very similar to Wendy. I think if anyone you know listening is joining us tonight, I hope you know that this is something that we consider a safe space. We all have something to say and something to share, and I'd love it for it to feel like a very, very much a community space where you're welcome to to speak your mind. And hopefully, we were able to help out with with 
being able to share our experiences and hopes and dreams <laughs> for the future of Sioux Falls. Candy, I love what Wendy said about competitiveness because I can't, the number of times also when somebody has said, oh, women don't support each other, but what really is happening is the system is set up so that women can't be make through, you know, can't get through the door, but then somebody will say, well, it's really just because you aren't supporting one another and you're competing instead. I'm like, is it, is that, is that what's happening there? It has absolutely (laughs) not been my experience. Yeah. It hasn't been. I, maybe I'm lucky or maybe I just know how to pick my friends, but it's been women that have been there propping me up and pushing me forward all along the way. So do not stop. Pick your friends. Definitely pick your friends. You have something to say. The number of people who are representing you in peer, in Washington, in the local school board, all of that matters. Be heard. Art can be an an amazing place to, to express some of those things that are inexpressible. Those are just a few of the themes that I've heard today in this very brief time. So if you want to see Uniting Generations of South Dakota Women panel discussion tonight, I cannot even imagine the gifts that will be laid before your feet like petals of roses. All right, 530 Washington Pavilion's Visual Arts Center. Um, In addition to these guests we've had today, Natalie Eisenberg and Harriet Yoakum are also on the panel, and Stephanie Herseth-Sandlin will provide the opening remarks. We'll put info up on our website about tickets and more, sdpb.org slash news. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. For this week's Teacher Talk, I stepped in as a guest blogger for the companion post on our website at sdpb.org slash teacher talk. Talking with Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur once a week is so delightful for me, and it always gets me thinking about the teachers who have shaped who I am today the ones that I remember fondly and the ones that I remember less fondly. So here is our teacher talk conversation that we shared yesterday. Gina Benz is a teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls. She's a recipient of the Milken Educator Award. Jackie Wilbur is director of the Center for Student and Professional Services in the School of Education at USD in Vermilion. So Jackie, not everybody gets it right every time. Surely you have some teachers in your past that you use as examples of what you didn't want to do. Sure. I think everyone has that in their past, right? Like Mm -hmm. one of the great and challenging parts of the profession is that educators are people. And so people are inherently imperfect. And so there's going to be bad stories about teachers along the way. Um, I also think it's important, and I wrestle with this in the field that I'm into, to acknowledge the history of education and how the system mm-hmm. has not always done right by groups of people um, or the practice for everyone was not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, this is in our history where kids were hit with rulers or that punishment was you know, physical in nature, right? We don't do mm-hmm. that anymore, obviously, but people have living memory of that. Um, either they themselves experienced it or they have relatives that did. Mm-hmm. Um, systems of oppression, you know, there's just a lot of different ways in which education wasn't doing the job that it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that educators acknowledge that and that 
I had to acknowledge that personally when I stepped into the classroom because not everyone liked me because they had bad experiences with previous teachers and that mm. burden was on me, right? They, I carried a role that I had to acknowledge. So I'm just really glad you brought all of this up, Lori. I think there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Gina, what did this bring up for you from your own past of other teachers that maybe didn't hit the mark? It mostly made me think about myself and guilt, I feel, when I think about mistakes I've made. Mm -hmm. And guilt is a good thing because it tells us what we should and shouldn't do. It reminds us to make a new plan, make new strategies. But some some mistakes I know I made, I I don't forget them. And that, that's probably for the best. But I do remind myself I'm doing better now. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's a parent... Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Can think of the time when they were not their best self and they mm -hmm. did damage mm -hmm. with their words or with their behavior or by not showing up. And I think the person that you hurt is a vulnerable child that you care deeply about. Mm -hmm. And so that can be a very hard thing to process. So maybe we'll talk about guilt, you know, in the future. But And also I wanted to mention in this blog post that I'm not that little kid anymore either. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have met people as a workshop leader who cannot write, for example, who are completely blocked. And the reason is because of their third grade teacher. And they will tell me extensively about how their third grade teacher wielded the red pen. And, and she said this and he did that. And, and sometimes I have to sit and say, okay, you are not that third grader anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's time for us to look at this and say, just because that teacher said you couldn't write doesn't mean it was true. Mm -hmm. And so I also want to give space to we grew up. Now, if you were a victim of some kind of trauma or painful stuff, you might need help to go through that with a professional. If you just had a teacher who maybe didn't like you, I think that you can be empowered right here now to say, hey, that teacher didn't see me for the person that I was. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because I'm now now I'm a, now I'm an adult. And sometimes the teacher is going through his or her own things mm -hmm. and it's really more about them and what's happening in their lives or happened in their lives than it is at all about you. Yeah. Um, Jackie, one of the examples I use is that I am the second child, mm -hmm. and every second child listening knows what I'm going to say next, mm -hmm. and that's that I was always in entirely and forever and all eternity compared to my older brother, who in my case was smart and thoughtful and an incredibly good student and just everybody's favorite mm -hmm. student. And then I came along, and I was less so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that story, when I read it, really had to make me personally reflect. I'm the oldest in my family, and mm -hmm. I, ugh, I hate even saying this out loud, but I, I definitely resembled your brother in terms of the way I went through school, right? And so I've thought about my younger siblings, but I think we were all kind of similar in this regard. But your story of being, like, related to, you know, like, you are Wes's younger sibling, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, had it like a preconceived label. And I've thought about how many times I do that now. It's very South Dakotan to say, oh, are you related to so-and-so? <laughs> right. It's yeah. very much like a part of our, our culture and upbringing to try and figure out the ways that we already know each other. Right. Um, and so I've, I saw it in a new way when I read your story of I never thought about that 
causing harm. I've always reached out in this way of being like, oh, I already know you, Lori, because I already know your brother. Look at this connection we have. And I never saw it from the other side. And so that, to me, spoke even more to what you're saying here, too, is that teachers, this will happen to us all the time, where we think we're doing good, and we might not be. And then we have to answer to that, too. Yeah, I have some friends, they had two children, and they would say they would go to conferences, they would go to one end of the school building and be told what great parents they were. Mm -hmm. They would go to the other end for the second child and be told what terrible parents they (laughs) were. How hard. They would just come out saying, hey, you know, like we knew that was going to happen. And Gina, this is, I guess it does get to the point where it's worthwhile talking about how kids are different. Parents have to parent differently. Teachers have to teach differently. My brother and I were two very different students. I was a good student. You know, we were both good students, but we were very different students. I was much less likely to care about pleasing the teacher Mm -hmm. than he was. He was really adept at that. I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the trick is that every teacher needs to find what is beautiful, wonderful, amazing about every student. I like to Mm -hmm. say that everybody is smart, just in different ways. Yeah. And so to recognize that, um, yeah, this student may not be um, great with the grammar, but oh my goodness, they can put an engine together. Right. And then to build connections based on those things. And that takes a lot of noticing. Notice is kind of my key word this year. Just just notice. My favorite thing was to go to a classroom where he had not been yet. Mm-hmm. And that I was so liberating. Mm-hmm. Because then all of a sudden it's like they didn't know mm-hmm. that I was less than. And obviously I was bringing that to the classroom. I, there wasn't one teacher, to be clear, who ever said, hmm, you're not your older brother or you sure aren't Wes. I mean, nobody. They just cared about him and they would mm-hmm. ask after him. But even to this day, if I see some of his college and high school teachers, they will say, how's Wes? Mm-hmm. But the first thing I will say to this teacher is about my brother. And I'm like, you remember I was in your class too, right? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I'm not sure that they do. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. The second thing I wanted to talk about was this teacher that I had who just did not pay any attention to us. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to what Gina was saying, I think. She just never moved from her desk mm-hmm. and she had this little she had like a perm with white hair and she had a bonnet, like a plastic bonnet that she would put over her hair whenever she went out for recess. And she would spend an inordinate amount of time <laughs> <laughs> checking her hair and making sure it didn't get damp. And I just remember feeling very, you know, obviously you guys, I was a sensitive child. Uh, uh, some other people probably loved her because they could do whatever they wanted, but I felt <laughs> sensitive because she wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, I can look back and say, here's a, here was a woman who was probably very near retirement, um, perhaps past retirement age, doing her best. I was seeing her from a different angle than I see her today. And that goes back to that growing up thing, Jackie, where you grow up and you realize that your teachers are just people too. Yeah, it's, I think, a pretty pivotal point in growing up, but it's hard to do with our 
adult mentors with our parents, with our teachers, with these people that we were trying to look up to, that we were seeking guidance from, that we wanted attention from. And it may or may not in this instance have been there in the way that we needed it. And that's very painful. Um, but I think you are doing and have done what is required by all people at a certain point is to say, these are the things that have happened to me. And then how do I move forward from here? Um, but that is, a, I found that to be one of the, the pieces of teaching, and I still do, that I take home with me at night where I replay the things I said and how they <laughs> might have come across. I've lost, yeah. I have, I've lost a lot of sleep over this. I'm working on it, I've been working on it. But to think like, what did my face look like when I said that? Or did I come across as not caring in this instance? Um, that's part of us trying to do do right by people, and we still get it wrong, you know? Yeah. Gina, what did that bring up for you? It's the same thing. I feel like I'm making, I feel like I sound really super sensitive. No. And you guys sound really super guilty. Ah, <laughs> I'm a sensitive person too, so I relate. You have <laughs> really some, there are some sensitive souls in your mm -hmm. classroom, and you know yeah. who they are. You know who they are. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that reminds me. I remember one year, gosh, about 15, 20 years ago, we mm -hmm. were reading a book as a staff, and it said, never use sarcasm. And many teachers were appalled by that. They thought sarcasm is how I bring humor into the classroom. It, it helps us to sure. bond and laugh. But <laughs> there's a lot of people in this world who do not understand sarcasm, yeah. who don't get sarcasm, who don't get it all the time, and especially young people who are mm -hmm. still learning those nuances. And so uh, it reminded me of that. I don't I think we just have to assume there's there's going to be sensitive people around, especially young people who are growing and developing yeah. and learning. And then I wanted to end the blog post with this idea of that red pen because so many people are the ones who tell, tell me about how being corrected in their writing particularly because I used to teach a lot of writing workshops that, that they were paralyzed with fear because of that red pen. And I was truthfully made better because of it. And so sometimes the thing the teacher did to you that you are carrying around with you is the thing that you needed to hear. Jackie, you have to tell people hard things. You have to tell mm -hmm. them when they're wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to show them that they didn't learn. You have to fail them on a test. You have to hold them accountable for, for homework. That is a lot of responsibility mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. a teacher to give to a lot of students on the, on the daily. And that yeah. is what made me the adult that I am today, was the seriousness with which teachers took my education. That's mm -hmm. a win. That's a big win for me. I love that you're thinking of it that way, and that's how I would hope most people can take it now. Um, it is a big amount of responsibility. It's something we take seriously. And one thing that um, in my own growing I've done is to think about, do I have to own the responsibility of how this implicate or impacts the students because I'm doing my job, right? right so right. when I coached debate, for instance, I had to cut kids from the debate team because they didn't meet the standards of what it meant to be on the debate team. So does that mean that that person can't ever public speak again or shouldn't ever, you know, get into like a research-based argument? No, it just meant at that time they were not qualified to be on the debate team in comparison to the other kids that were on my team, right? Yeah. And then do I have to now 
own as as that person as an adult like you're sharing with these folks who are like I can't write because my third grade teacher did that do I still at this point have to own those children who didn't make my debate team if they feel like they can't public speak like where is the line of my responsibility mm-hmm. and I think I've landed in that I did the best I could at the time and as Maya Angelou says I'm trying to do better now that I know better where and when I can. But at a certain point, I do think we all have to take responsibility for the fact that we didn't do what we were supposed to do at a certain time, or we weren't good enough in a certain instance. And that's not somebody else's quote unquote fault. It's just what the situation was at the time. Well, there is more to this conversation online, including our thoughts on the positive influence of lots of our teachers, including the fictional Professor Snape and a South Dakota South Dakota teacher, excuse me, so good they named a sandwich after him. You can find the rest of the conversation online at sdpb.org slash teacher talk. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. Lawmakers are largely silent on the matter of fertility treatment in South Dakota after the Alabama Supreme Court said embryos outside the uterus are people. Lee Strubinger has the update. Plus, Governor Kristi Noem edges closer to a nod for vice president. We have analysis on that. We'll talk about the nature of freedom and the legislative session. Our Dakota political junkies for tomorrow are Seth Tupper and Kevin Wooster. You can always find us on Instagram. We're at SDPB News there. We have a YouTube channel, and you can download the In the Moment podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at SDPB, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.